Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And this is a collaborative effort between the Lymphoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care. And today's title is Update on Lymphoma from the 2018 American Society of Hematology, or ASH, annual meeting. This is a collaborative effort between Lymphoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care. And also, we have a number of other organizations who have helped to spread the word about the programs. But I must really take my hat off to the Lymphoma Research Foundation for really, really um, letting you all know mostly about this program today. And because of all of this, and your interest in the topic today, we have on this program today over 929 participants. So although you can't see each other, there's a lot of you on this call today. And you come from all over the United States, both from urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Austria, Canada, Colombia, Croatia, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, Turkey, and United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call, actually. Now, today's program is supported through unrestricted educational grants to the Lymphoma Research Foundation from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Celgene Corporation, and Genentech. And we really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Andrew Evans. Dr. Evans is Associate Director for Clinical Service, Director of Lymphoma Program, Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, Medical Director of the Oncology Service Line, RWJ Barnabas Health. And Dr. Evans is going to present an overview of lymphoma from the 2018 American Society of Hematology, or ASH, annual meeting. He will present new research presented at ASH and disease-specific updates on Hodgkin's lymphoma, T-cell lymphoma, and mantle cell lymphoma. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Evans. Dr. Mesner, thank you so much. It's really great to be here. I want to thank Cancer Connect for hosting this and, of course, Lymphoma Research Foundation for their collaboration and also for really the educational and grant funding support that they give uh, investigators really that have led, frankly, to a lot of the breakthroughs that you'll be hearing about uh, during ASH. But uh, I'm under the gun for 13 minutes, so my clock has started. I'm going to run through these three topics of Hodgkin lymphoma, T-cell lymphoma, and mantle cell lymphoma, and really just highlight a few of the abstracts, uh, some of the more prominent ones. There, of course, are thousands of abstracts that are presented in oral presentation and poster format over the four-plus days, so I'll just be highlighting a few. So Hodgkin's lymphoma, we know that's a, a cancer, a lymphoma that is seen uh, more so in younger patients, although there is an elderly subset. And we also know it's very treatable and curable in the high majority of patients. So a lot of the research over the years, especially the last few years, has focused on how can we maintain that high remission and cure rate and also minimize side effects. One of the aspects for patients with early stage disease where it's only in a few places 
has been, do we use chemotherapy by itself, and are there some patients where possibly low-dose radiation is added? There was one presentation um, from really one of the worldwide leaders from the German Hodgkin's uh, study group that presented data on this. And suffice it to say, it was slightly better for what we call progression-free survival, adding radiation, but I would also submit it's not a one-size-fits-all, and it remains a very individualized decision. But a, more data that was presented and really adds to the richness to help guide the clinician and the patient at the bedside. I had alluded to this is mainly in younger patients, about uh, two-thirds, 75%, but a quarter of patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma will be older, uh, over age 60 and 70 years. So there has been, uh, I would say, somewhat of a renewed at least research interest in this, and uh, folks may have heard of the study called the Echelon 1 study. That was a, a pretty big breakthrough at last year's ASH presented by Dr. Joe Connors of the British Columbia adding the novel targeted agent brentuximab vodotin to frontline therapy. And that became FDA approved just after last year's ASH. Well, we're starting to see some more analyses from that uh, research as we often will have the initial publication and then we'll have additional uh, analyses that emerge. One was on older patients and it looked at Yes, there was a benefit. It was a maybe a little less, and maybe not surprisingly, uh, a little bit of increased toxicity. So one that, again, as many of these abstracts show us, it doesn't lead to a one-size-fits-all, but gives us more information about how to guide therapy. There was actually a second abstract also presented in older patients from the German Hodgkin study group, looking at a different regimen, uh, adding brentuximab vodotin, but a, a little bit of a different backbone than the Echelon 1 that used adriamycin vinblastine to carbazine, or AVD. They used a backbone of chemotherapy called CAP, which is kind of like CHOP. It was cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and prednisone. So long story short, for newly diagnosed Hodgkin's, just uh, really nice to see additional data and especially targeted therapeutics being integrated into frontline therapy. For relapsed Hodgkin's and lymphoma, so hopefully uh, the hope is always it, it works the first time, but sometimes it doesn't. And really the future there is also the same. How can we integrate these targeted therapeutics in a smart and rational way? So uh, a few different ways to do that. Uh, there was a, a really nice update of a large national study conducted through the ECOG Akron Cooperative Group. This was uh, data presented by Catherine Diefenbach, who's at NYU. And the study name, in case anyone's interested, was called, was called E4412. It has a letter and a number. And we know now there are three drugs, targeted drugs, I should say, that are approved for relapsed, and I mentioned brentuximab also for, for newly diagnosed. Two of those three are what we call checkpoint inhibitors. That's uh, nivolumab and, and pembrolizumab. And so we're trying to figure out, okay, yes, can we move it frontline, but what about can we combine them together? And Is it safe, number one? And number two, is it effective? So what Dief Dr. Diefenbach did is even take it a step further. They combined brentuximab vodotin with uh, a checkpoint inhibitor, nivolumab, and they even added a third one that's approved in not lymphoma, it's actually another checkpoint inhibitor approved in solid tumors, melanoma, called ipilumumab. 
And so this was really what I would call an exploratory phase one, two study, where they wanted to make sure it was safe, and they saw a strong, what we call efficacy signal, is it effective? And the long story short there was yes, it appeared safe and highly effective. Now, you, the question becomes, well, how do we really compare to a standard of care? So this study has has finished in its first form uh, and then just literally reopened a week or two across the United States where it's comparing what we would call the doublet of brentuximab vidotin plus the checkpoint inhibitor with or without ipilimumab. So it, it's now a randomized phase two study, which in many instances, if you really want to prove it's effective, that's uh, an important study design to do. So that's Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, in terms of updates. So I'm sorry, I had one more update on Hodgkin's lymphoma, and I'm sure Dr. Sen will talk about CAR T-cell therapy that really uh, the breakthroughs have been in B-cell lymphoma, but there was some preliminary updates to, in fact, presentations of CAR T-cell therapy for Hodgkin's lymphoma. So unlike the B-cell lymphoma, where the target is CD19, in Hodgkin's lymphoma, one of the epitopes on the surface is called CD30. And so CD30 is, uh, I, I would say uh, quickly, is a little bit of a trickier target for CAR T-cells, partly because CD30s are also on T-cells themselves. So it's a little bit of an issue. You don't want to target its own T-cell. But suffice it to say, in these two preliminary uh, analyses is it was safe and encouraging. So it's a little bit behind, the, certainly, the, the B cell, CD19 CAR T cell, but really one that is very exciting to, to look at this very targeted therapy also in Hodgkin's and potentially in T cell lymphoma. So speaking, and I'm going to shift gears now to T cell lymphoma, when we talk about T cell lymphoma, this is probably one of the bigger takeaways from ASH that we saw. This was called the Echelon 2 study. So the Echelon 1 was the one I, uh, the aforementioned in Hodgkin's lymphoma. Echelon 2 was the same targeted therapeutic, brentuximab vidotin, but looking at it in patients with untreated peripheral T-cell lymphoma. So that's one, peripheral T-cell lymphoma, that's been a little more challenging to treat. And we've frankly known that for uh, a few decades now. You know, we had, rituximab came around 20 years ago for B-cell lymphoma, and we really have not had, for newly diagnosed patients, one that was proven safe and effective and improved outcomes. So this was a very large uh, international randomized phase three study that really compared the standard. And so what have we been using for several decades is the regimen called CHOP, C-H-O-P, and what the quote-unquote experimental arm at the time was replacing the O, the vincristine or Oncovin, with brentuximab vidotin. And so in this large phase three study, nearly 500 patients across 17 countries were randomized, and it went head-to-head. -head. And we are hopeful, and you don't know the data until the, the results ultimately were presented, and it, it was a significant breakthrough. And what it showed is the new arm adding brentuximab vidotin to the, or replacing it, uh, that one medication I mentioned, was significant in terms of really multiple endpoints. It not only improved progression-free survival, but it literally improved overall survival. In other words, patients were living longer. And, and we love to see it, and frankly, it's the first time we have seen that in this disease in its history, that a targeted therapeutic 
or, or really you, someone could argue any drug is improving the overall survival above and beyond the standard. So this was published contemporaneously in the Lancet journals. Dr. Horowitz from Memorial Sloan Kettering was the first author. And this has now become FDA approved and, again, is a significant breakthrough. We're certainly not done in T-cell lymphoma, but it's a really, really significant step forward. So what are some of those next steps? Well, there were a host of what I would call other novel targeted agents. You know, I've, I've mentioned the checkpoint inhibitors, the brentuximab vedotin, which is considered an antibody drug conjugate. But really, there are a host of other pathways that can be targeted. And I'm really uh, focusing on more of the clinical abstracts, but suffice it to say, there were a ton of really neat, interesting scientific abstracts where more of the scientists present the biology and dissecting what makes lymphoma grow, why does it grow, how does it grow. And once you can find some of those answers, it gives you targets to go after. And number one and number two, to hopefully do it in a more personalized and targeted way on an individual patient basis. So one such pathway that is activated, we think abnormally, in T-cell lymphoma is called, and these are just different pathways, they might not mean a lot, it's called SYK or JAK, S-Y-K and J-A-K. Why is that helpful? Well, there is a particular uh, inhibitor, not approved yet. It's still in uh, experimental uh, or pr uh, study form called serdulatinib, and that was studied. And the reason I'm mentioning it, it was really significant. It was only a phase two study that looked at peripheral T-cell lymphoma and also patients with cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And it was uh, really a pretty pretty decent remission rate, uh, around 50%. And so these are ones that will get studied by itself, will be encouraging, and then ultimately will be put to the test with the FDA compared against current standard therapies in terms of how does it stack up and what are the next steps. So that was T-cell lymphoma, and I'll finish with mantle cell lymphoma. And I would say it's somewhat similar to Hodgkin's lymphoma, where maybe there wasn't as a massive of a practice-changing breakthrough as the T-cell lymphoma one I had mentioned, but a lot of really good updates and new nuggets, in particular for patients with newly diagnosed mantle cell lymphoma. That definitely is still a situation where it is not one-size-fits-all, and there are a few different options. And uh, the options to think about, do we use targeted therapeutics? There are several targeted therapeutics approved for mantle cell lymphoma, such as the proteasome inhibitors or lenalidomide, as well as the BTK inhibitors. And so we had several abstracts looking at how do we best incorporate these novel targeted therapeutics to the frontline setting, number one. And number two, really trying to say, well, what about the intensity of therapy? For many patients, uh, for, for a number of years, we've thought about an autologous stem cell transplant for patients in f first remission, as well as if it comes back for, for relapse disease. And so there were several nice presentations, really kind of working our way through what's the best chemotherapy backbone, how intense should that chemotherapy be, number one, and number two, how do we, on top of that or concurrently with that, start to integrate some of these novel therapeutic agents, whether one at a time or even multiple at the same time? And the last thing I'll mention is that we're also, and I've alluded to this, personalized, individualized medicine. So one is around the biology of the disease. 
The second is there's something called circulating tumor DNA. So this is super microscopic levels of the cancer that you cannot measure by conventional methods. So there was a very nice abstract presentation from the NCI looking at this what's called ctDNA to measure does it go down? If it doesn't go down, should we change therapy? If it goes down, can we stay on the same therapy? So really just more ammunition and really neat science to help us understand how to individualize therapy. And I'll stop there. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Evans. That was really wonderful and actually very comprehensive. And indeed, um, you really have addressed a lot of questions that I think people are going to uh, comments, topics that I think you're going to have a lot of questions on during the Q&A. So thank you so much. Um, really outstanding. And our next speaker is Dr. Lori Sen. Dr. Sen is Chair, Lymphoma Tumor Group, Associate Editor, Blood um, BC Cancer Agency, Center for Lymphoid Cancer. And Dr. Sen is going to be addressing disease-specific updates from ASH on indolent lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, and aggressive B-cell lymphoma. And she's also going to be addressing talking with her healthcare team about treatment options and the role of clinical trials and translational research. Now, it's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sen. Yes, uh, hello, and thank you again for the invitation. I think that uh, I've been charged with quite a, a large set of topics, but uh, similar to Dr. Evans, I have selected what I, I think are some key messages that emerged from ASH. So focusing on first aggressive lymphomas and aggressive B-cell lymphomas, um, many of you may have heard the term, <clears throat> sorry, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is the most common aggressive B-cell lymphoma that we encounter. And the current strategy for managing diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is a very curable type of lymphoma, really relies on the combination of chemotherapy of CHOP with the antibody rituximab. And that's been the standard of care now for about 15 years. So there's a, a big impetus to try and move beyond that for being the standard of care and to try and improve outcomes. So several trials that I, I think were very important, and one actually focused on what we call localized diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So about one-third of people who are newly diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma actually have, at the time of their diagnosis, what we call localized disease or disease that's really present in uh, only a part of their body. And, and right now, management for this is somewhat controversial. So in many uh, situations, it may be appropriate to give a shorter course of chemotherapy together radiation. And in some centers, they're more commonly using a full course of chemotherapy, which is typically six full cycles of chemotherapy. I think there's a big impetus to try and get away from radiation therapy, so more and more, um, if you walk in with localized diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, people are typically getting the same treatment as more advanced stage patients, so full courses of RCHOP. So what we saw at ASH this year was presented uh, data looking at trying to back away from a full six cycles of chemotherapy for patients with localized diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So you know, very often our, our trials will focus on trying to add additional treatments and, and, you know, we're sometimes constantly adding drugs that might increase toxicity. This was an attempt to try and back away from treatment. Can we get away with less treatment for these patients? So it was a head-to-head -head comparison in patients with localized diffuse large B-cell lymphoma who um, 
actually had no concerning risk factors and non-bulky or, or smaller bulked uh, involvement with their lymphoma. And it was a head-to-head comparison of only four cycles of RCHOP versus the full six cycles. And what this trial showed was that there was no detriment to backing down to only the four cycles. So four cycles was just as effective and came with less side effects. So I think this trial will serve to really modify how some people manage uh, limited stage or localized diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and it really proves that you don't need a full six cycles of treatment for select patients with limited stage disease, but four cycles is equally good. And as I said, this is an important trial because I think it will change the standard of care in many situations so that people will be exposed to less chemotherapy and still have the same good outcome. The next trial I'd like to focus on is uh, for patients with advanced stage diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So what we're learning more and more is that this is the most common aggressive B-cell lymphoma that we encounter, but there are uh, a variety of different subgroups, or what we would call biological subgroups, within what we call diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So over the years, uh, a lot of the biology research that's taking place has proven that you know there are different groups of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma that have different biological factors at play. And as we now have in development very targeted drugs, so drugs that have been designed in such a way to try and uh, specifically target abnormalities, you know, at the core of cancer cells that um, it's that you know maybe driving that cancer cell. It's becoming more and more important for us to recognize these different biological subgroups within diffuse large B cell lymphoma, so that when we test these targeted drugs, we're testing them in the patients who are most likely to benefit. So there was a very important trial presented at ASH this year that looked at a subgroup of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and that's a group that's called a non-GCB subgroup. So by using some um, special pathology tools, looking at the biopsies of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, we can broadly divide people into what's called a non-GCB subgroup or a GCB subgroup. This clinical trial looked at patients with a non-GCB subgroup. And it focused on adding a new drug into the standard backbone of RCHOP. So six cycles of RCHOP, as I mentioned, is the standard of care for advanced stage diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And this trial looked at adding in the drug called abrutinib. So abrutinib is a very targeted drug that is currently on the market for different types of lymphoid cancers, including CLL and uh, Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, and this trial looked at adding abrutinib to the backbone of RCHOP for patients specifically with a non-GCB subgroup of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, because this is the group that we believe abrutinib is most likely to benefit based on how abrutinib works at targeting BTK and what we know about non-GCB diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So in this large head-to-head trial where patients were randomized, so half of the patients got standard RCHOP and the other half got RCHOP plus the addition of verbrutinib, 
Um, overall, the trial showed no advantage to the addition of abrutinib, but when they looked closer at the data, what they saw was something very, very interesting, and that was that in the group of patients who were younger, so less than 60 years of age, the addition of brutinib actually seemed to have a big advantage. So it led to uh, better um, response rates, better what we call progression-free survival, so less likelihood of relapsing after treatment, and also a better overall survival. However, in patients who are older than 60 or 65, the difficulty with adding a brutinib to RCHOP uh, was that it led to a higher element of toxicity. So there was less tolerance for the package of abrutinib and RCHOP, so less people were able to get the plan of six treatments. And because less people were able to get the whole plan treatment, it did not seem to add benefit. So the trial really put forward a mixed method, message. In the end, the trial overall didn't show a benefit to adding abrutinib, but when we broke it down into younger versus older patients, uh, what we really saw was in the younger patients who can tolerate the treatment, it actually had a benefit in progression-free and overall survival. So this is somewhat difficult because, unfortunately, given the fact that the trial was considered to be negative, it's unlikely to become a new standard of care because it's not a trial that the FDA will be able to use to approve the drug uh, based on this information because of the mixed message that came out according to the age range of the patient. However, I, I think it's an important demonstration that um, using a targeted agent in the right group of patients may in fact have benefit, may in fact be able to improve outcomes and survival. And this trial will undoubtedly lead to a next series of trials where this will have to be reexamined in a carefully planned out trial um, in patients where it's felt safe to administer this combination. So I think an important trial and that lessons were learned although currently it's probably not likely to change the standard of care. So moving on to uh, not the upfront setting of treatment, but in patients with relapsed and refractory aggressive B-cell lymphomas and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, what we've seen in the last year or two has been the um, the development of a very important treatment, which was alluded to by Dr. Evans earlier, and that is CAR T cell therapy. So this is a treatment that we heard a lot about at the ASH meeting uh, a year ago, and it really led to the uh, emergence of this novel therapy on the market. So it was FDA approved within the last year based on data that was presented a year ago. So CAR T cell therapy, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, is a, a type of engineered T cell. So it's an approach where um, the treatment relies on using patients' own T cells that are actually removed from the body and then engineered to attack a certain marker, and, and for the drugs that are available on the market right now, that marker is CD19, which is frequently present on B-cell lymphomas. And then the drug, after uh, being modified, gets infused back into patients with the goal of creating an immune reaction against patients' own lymphoma cells. Now, this has been a very important treatment 
for patients with aggressive B-cell lymphomas where it's been shown to have very high response rates and potentially offer very durable remissions and possibly even cures in patients who have failed standard treatments. So what we saw at ASH this year was more data coming out on the potential value of CAR T-cell therapy for patients with relapsed aggressive B-cell lymphoma. Whereas the initial trials that were um, presented over a year ago at ASH really uh, showed data on small groups of patients that were enrolled on clinical trials, what we saw this year at ASH was data that was described as real-world data, so outcomes that are now being seen in uh, practice settings where the drug is being used in routine practice. And what we saw is that across the centers in the United States where this drug is now available and being used in routine practice for patients who are not participating on clinical trials, so um, this would be an experience that includes many patients who might uh, not have made it onto clinical trials because of uh, maybe being less well or being older and unable to meet the strict criteria of participating in a trial, what we've seen now in the real-world setting is very, very encouraging results from CAR T-cell therapy. So we're seeing the same kind of benefit being seen in a broader group of patients, and we're seeing the same safety uh, in a broader group of patients. Um, there was also a trial that was presented that looked specifically at older patients. So, you know, did older patients have the same benefit and the same safety as younger patients getting CAR T-cell therapy? And the answer was that they did. So I think it was um, very uh, important information looking now, now that this drug has made it onto the market and is being used in routine practice, are we really seeing the same benefit? And it was very encouraging data to suggest that this drug is, is um, obviously having a very big impact. So switching gears for a minute to um, indolent lymphomas and particularly follicular lymphoma, there was one very important trial that was presented that was called the AUGMENT trial. So this was a trial that looked at the combination of a drug called lenalidomide. Uh, lenalidomide is a drug that's often referred to in a, as an immunomodulator. So it's a drug that has a variety of effects on the immune system. Um, and it's commonly used for other types of lymphoid cancers like multiple myeloma and has been tested in follicular lymphoma. And this trial that was presented was a head-to-head -head comparison of lenalidomide and rituximab versus rituximab alone in patients with relapsed refractory indolent lymphoma, uh, including follicular lymphoma and marginal zone lymphomas. So uh, about a year ago, we had data looking at lenalidomide and rituximab in a trial called RELEVANCE that was examined in untreated patients. And in that trial, it was shown to be a very effective treatment, but was not shown to be better than standard chemotherapy and rituximab. So uh, as a consequence, because it wasn't shown to be better in that trial, it did not gain an FDA approval. But here's a trial where it was looked at now in the relapse refractory setting and compared as a combination of lenalidomide and rituximab versus rituximab alone in relapsed refractory indolent lymphoma. And in this trial, the combination of lenalidomide and rituximab had a profound improvement in response rates and in progression-free survival compared with rituximab alone. 
Um, the trial included mainly follicular lymphoma patients, so about 80% of people had follicular lymphoma and 20% had marginal zone. And when they looked more closely at the follicular lymphoma patients, it also seemed to improve overall survival. So based on this trial, I think many of us expect that lenalidomide will likely get an approval in indolent uh, B-cell lymphoma very shortly. And also, you know, I think it's really further data that shows that this is a very important treatment that is now uh, going to be available for indolent lymphomas. Um, and, you know, I think it'll be an important treatment that will likely make its way into an option into many patients with indolent B-cell lymphomas. Um, so I'm cognizant of time. I'll probably just mention one other uh, set of drugs. So one of the things that we learned coming out of ASH is, of course, what are the new drugs on the horizon? And I think, to me, one of the most important drugs that I saw presented at ASH this year, antibodies. So immune important treatment for lymphomas and cancers broadly. Uh, there's a new class of drugs called bispecific antibodies. We saw two presentations on this at ASH that explored uh, bispecific antibodies that these are, if you can think of them as, I always think about antibodies as being almost arrows. They, they uh, come in, they're proteins that target a specific target. These are like two arrows stuck together. One arrow is designed to target onto a B cell marker. The other arrow is designed to target onto a T cell marker. So the goal is to bring T cells together with B cells to, again, fight off uh, the body's lymphoma with their own immune system. There were a couple of um, presentations at ASH looking at bispecific antibodies for both aggressive B-cell lymphomas and indolent B-cell lymphomas. And what we saw was really remarkable benefit in both kinds of lymphomas where uh, their response rates were quite impressive and in many situations the benefit was very, very prolonged. So I think these are a particular drug that fall under what we would call immunotherapy that um, is gleaming a lot of interest and it's really nice to see this information emerging. So with that in mind, I, I think it's really important that, you know, for all patients out there as they're considering what their next treatment should be or their first treatment should be, that there are many options available for B-cell lymphomas and lymphomas in general. Um, some of them, uh, of course, are standardly used and, and some are just emerging. But as patients consider what their best options are, it really is important to talk to your healthcare team about what options are available, uh, what's considered standard, what is investigational, what options might they have to participate in clinical trials and, and to have a very open discussion in terms of the benefits but also the side effects of therapies because there might be um, choices of therapy and, and sometimes it's a balance between trying to pick the right treatment that has the best benefit but also with reasonable side effects, uh, keeping in mind individual patients' you know, um, medical history and, and overall state of health. So the final point I want to make is just it is a very important uh, consideration to consider what clinical trials you might have access to. So uh, many patients are being treated in centers where clinical trials are being performed. If not, there are likely local centers that you can be referred to where clinical trials are being formed. So clinical trials are the mechanism that we have to test novel drugs 
and to attempt to, of course, improve treatment over time and to get these novel drugs onto the market. So uh, participating in clinical trials is a way to get access to some uh, promising drugs prior to them becoming available on the market, and it's the way that we actually speed up progress. Um, of course, it's an important consideration and, and a discussion that each patient should have with their own doctor. Um, within these clinical trials, very often we have what's called translation, translational research built in. So this is an attempt to look at the biology of lymphoma. This is an important aspect of clinical trials because, as we mentioned earlier, there are many targeted agents. Our goal is really to get the right targeted drug uh, in treating the right patient, and, and that means understanding biology in individual patients carefully enough that we're able to select drugs for the right patients. And all of the clinical trials that are taking place right now, most of them have translational uh, aspects built in, meaning that there's a component where, uh, in addition to testing the drug, uh, we're also trying to understand the biology of lymphoma and trying to understand which patients are benefiting from that drug from the biological standpoint. So I'll, I'll end right there. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, um, Dr. Sam. That was really excellent and outstanding. And you covered a lot of uh, various areas, and I know that there's a lot of questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, and so thank you. And um, our next speaker is Ms. Peggy Antoni. Ms. Turney is Chief Strategy, Communications, and Engagement Officer of Lymphoma Research Foundation. And I've had the pleasure of working with Ms. Turney over planning this program, and I have to say she has taken a wonderful lead in the um, being the architect of the program and selecting our wonderful speakers. So I, with great um, pleasure now, um, want to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Turney, who's going to say some remarks about the Lymphoma Research Foundation, a wonderful organization. So, thank you, Carolyn, and thank you for those kind words. Uh, thank you also to Cancer Care for your continued partnership for these teleconferences. I'd also like to thank our incredible faculty, Dr. Evans and Dr. Sen, for sharing their time and expertise with us today, and really for all that they do for the Lymphoma Research Foundation and the entire lymphoma community. As Carolyn mentioned earlier, I would also like to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Celgene Corporation, and Genentech, whose support made today's call possible. Most importantly, though, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining us on today's teleconference. I know we shared a lot of information with you today, and if you have any questions about some of the information you may have learned, I want you to know that the Lymphoma Research Foundation is here for you. The Lymphoma Research Foundation is the nation's largest nonprofit dedicated exclusively to lymphoma, and our mission is to eradicate this disease and serve those touched by it. The Lymphoma Research Foundation is committed to advancing our understanding of lymphoma so that we can ultimately find cures. Our scientific advisory board, which is comprised of 45 of the world's leaders in lymphoma, including Dr. Evans and Dr. Sen, guide our investment in research, and to date, we have funded more than $60 million in lymphoma-specific research. As we continue to make progress in lymphoma research, we also want to ensure that you have access to the latest information about lymphoma. LRF offers a variety of educational resources so that you can access information in whatever way you may learn best. Whether you are newly diagnosed or seeking help with long-term survivorship, LRF can help you. The Foundation provides comprehensive disease and treatment-specific resources, 
programs, and services, all of which are offered free of charge and have been reviewed by lymphoma experts. Most relevant to today's call, though, LRF offers a variety of resources to help you navigate your lymphoma diagnosis and learn about the latest in lymphoma treatment options. The LRF helpline can answer your specific questions about your particular subtype of lymphoma and discuss relevant treatment options with you. Our professionally trained staff members can also run individualized clinical trial searches for you and even provide you with a list of questions to take back to your healthcare team so that you can have the most robust discussions regarding your treatment and long-term care. We also offer a variety of publications that have been reviewed by lymphoma experts to ensure you have the latest lymphoma information. We have comprehensive books on understanding non-Hodgkin lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and the transplantation process. We also offer a variety of easy-to-understand fact sheets on each of the subtypes of lymphoma, as well as current treatment modalities, including a dedicated CAR T-cell lymphoma fact sheet, as well as supportive care topics that may be relevant to your specific lymphoma experience. The Lymphoma Research Foundation also hosts in-person education programs across the country to provide the opportunity for you to learn from and ask questions of leading lymphoma experts who are at the forefront of some of the research that you heard about today. I would encourage you to visit our website, lymphoma.org, to find out if there is one of these free educational programs in your area. Finally, our mobile app, Focus on Lymphoma, is an award-winning app that provides lymphoma patients and their caregivers comprehensive lymphoma content, as well as really unique tools to help manage your disease. The Focus on Lymphoma app allows you to record doctor sessions, manage your medications, and track your symptoms and side effects. The app is available for free download in the Apple App Store and in Google Play, and I would really encourage you all to download the app today as it can help empower you to become an active participant in your treatment decision-making process. And last, but certainly not least, for those of you looking to give back and help advance the research like you heard about today, I would encourage you to join Team LRF. The Lymphoma Research Foundation offers a variety of walks and rides for you to participate in, or you could even turn your talents and passions into ways to raise funds for lymphoma research. Through Team LRF, you can meet others who have been impacted by this disease and join a community of individuals committed to impacting lives by finding cures for lymphoma. I really hope that you will take advantage of some of the great resources and services that the Lymphoma Research Foundation provides. If there is one thing that you take away from today's program, please know that the Lymphoma Research Foundation is here for you. Whether you have questions regarding what you learned today or you need information about your specific type of lymphoma, you can reach out to the Lymphoma Research Foundation through our website at lymphoma.org or by calling our helpline at 1-800-500-9976. Thank you all for your time today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Trini. That was really wonderful, and um, thank you. And um, I'm going to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take your questions. So um, please all start to post your questions, either online or prepared to, um, you'll hear directions about how to ask your questions, so think about your questions. Um, I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national um, organization providing free psychosocial support to people living with cancer and lymphoma. Um, it is an organization that is staffed by oncology social workers, so they are specially trained. 
NASA is level trained to provide a host of services to you. So a chance to talk to someone on the phone about your concerns, about your worries, about, um, oh, about also in terms of getting practical and financial assistance. And we also have a copay foundation. We also have a program in terms of helping children and families where there might be cancer, children and teens and young adults um, who might be coping with cancer in their family. And of course, the issue is how do I return to work? Um, all the kind of questions that one has, how do I live with myself, how do I tell my friends, all those kinds of questions that one has in terms of just how do I, how do I deal with this. Um, we also have, of course, many of these type of workshops, and we offer publications and um, have a very robust website as well. So it's, a, it's an interesting place to come to for help. Uh, you can call us at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And so now I'm going to ask um, Crystal if she would explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your question, the very end, I will suggest a few ways to get your questions answered. So Crystal, let's see how many we can take right now. <laughs> Thank you. And, you're, and please bring our speakers on board, all of our speakers. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Ron R. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, thank you for an excellent presentation. Uh, I have a question about, I think the acronym is called the JC virus, and it's normally uh, a fairly common virus in most of us, and it's normally inactive, but with uh, treatment for lymphoma, apparently uh, for longer term, uh, it often leads to a condition or disease called PML, which I'll probably mispronounce, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. Uh, forgive my mispronunciation if that's it. My question is, is that more or how prevalent? I understand that's relatively rare and it's for longer term people with treatment to keep them in remission. But uh, how prevalent or rare is it, and is it more or less associated with one type of treatment versus another? Well, thank you. That's an excellent question. Um, Dr. Evans, would you like to begin by addressing that question in a general way, of course? Um, and then, of course, we do recommend that you actually go back to treating healthcare team. But let's see if we can just give you some general concepts on this that might help everybody on the call. Dr. Evans? Sure. No, thank you. Uh, thankfully, it's a very rare condition, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, or the acronym you exactly mentioned, PML. And this is something that's been known for decades, meaning just with chemotherapy treatment before any of our newer treatments, that it was there, and meaning rare, meaning one in many thousands of patients. And so it might be just a little increased um, with some of our newer targeted agents, but but really it's still, even with some of the newer agents, one in many thousands of patients. And it's it can be severe. Um, thankfully, it's rare, but if it does occur, very prompt diagnosis by the medical team is warranted. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you for that question. So you definitely want to go back to your treating healthcare team and be sure that... Um, um, that, that, you're, um, that this is being addressed. And Dr. Sen, do you want to add anything to that? Yes, no, I, I would just reiterate that it is a very, very 
uncommon problem. And right now, you know, we're always with newer treatments heightened as to what might be unexpected toxicities, but it would really be hard to link it into one treatment more than another treatment. Uh, sometimes it may be just the cumulative effect of a variety of treatments, but it is something that is extremely rare and, and hopefully uh, majority of patients will never need to think about. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Sen. Um, drugs that have not been approved yet but have shown promise in clinical trials, are they ever allowed to be used off-label for the purpose they were used for in the trial it was included in? Mm-hmm. So repeat you know, that? A, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. And, and, you know, I think that obviously we do clinical trials to test whether or not something has value and whether or not it's safe. And if through a clinical trial that's proven, so drugs, you know, make something better or um, just as good and are less toxic, um, you know, generally they can meet the bar to get approved by the FDA, and, and then that usually leads to widespread availability and, and payment by third-party payers. Um, there are situations, however, where you know drugs may not meet the bar for being approved by the FDA, but you know within a clinical trial, we may see some value to it. It might be in a subgroup of patients, and that gets to be a much trickier um, situation. Um, if the drug's already on the market and can be accessed, you know, uh, by buying it or through a third-party payer. I think that's a situation that requires very, very careful discussion on a one-on-one basis, you know, with a patient's own healthcare provider because um, sometimes those drugs can be used if it makes sense to use them against all the other options that are available, and it may mean, you know, weighing in the safety and the benefit of what's known in terms of the benefit for individual patients. So they can be used. Um, you know, it, it, sometimes third-party payers won't pay for them if they're not FDA-approved, but it, it can be tricky in terms of accessing them. But that, that really becomes a very one-on-one individual discussion with your own health care provider. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Evans, do you want to add anything? Or? Well, I totally concur, and, and it is it is the future, though, when we talk about personalized medicine, because there are a lot of these novel targeted agents. Some of them work good enough and are safe to be approved. Some of them aren't quite, uh, let's say, effective enough, and so that's where I, I would say it kind of goes back to the science, and we need to sift through all the different genetics and biology to see can we make it more personalized and find the certain patients with a certain abnormal pathway where we really get a lot more bang for our buck. And so there's a lot more work to be done, but we've made some nice progress. Excellent. Thank you. And our next telephone question, um, Crystal. And our next question comes from Tony G. Your line is open. Yeah, here's my question. Uh, I'm a uh, 18-year follicular survivor, including nine years in remission. And I know several people several friends that are also long, long-term survivors, none of us have had allogeneic transplants. Is there some thought in the lymphoma community that follicular lymphoma might be getting cured in other ways? Well, thank you for that question, Tony. Thank you. Um, Dr. Sen, could you address that question? Yes. So, you know, I think a really interesting question, and um, 
I think, you know, part of the research that's going on now in testing novel drugs in follicular lymphoma is really aimed at trying to find targeted drugs or immune therapy, let's say, related drugs where we might be able to say that we've got a curative therapy for follicular lymphoma short of allogeneic transplant. And, um, you know, right now I think there's a lot of promise in these novel therapies, um, but at this point in time, most of us still consider follicular lymphoma to not be curable uh, with the exception of, you know, the rare patient that goes on to get an allogeneic stem cell transplant. However, having said that, we know that, you know, in all clinical trials and in all experiences where people have reported outcomes on patients with follicular lymphoma, there are many patients that can go into very prolonged remissions uh, using very standard drugs and, of course, sometimes now are novel agents. And, you know, they may never see their lymphoma emerge in their lifetime. And, you know, is it gone? Are some people being cured? I mean, it really is a difficult question to answer because in many of those patients, you know, oftentimes we can see it come back maybe even 20 years later. So presumably it was sitting there quiet in the background. I think that, you know, effectively, if if we can put people into very prolonged remissions, uh, it may be the equivalent uh, as a cure. But I guess the, the the real answer is we don't know, although it is intriguing that, you know, it, with all of our therapies, there are some patients that do not seem to relapse again in their lifetime. And whether or not it's hiding there in the background, being controlled by the body's own immune system, are some people actually cured? It's really a, a bit of an unknown question. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, a question from one of our telephone participants, um, Crystal. Thank you. Our next question comes from Patty D. Your line is open. Uh, yes, Dr. Sen, but what about transformed follicular lymphoma? Any progress there? Any possibility of a cure there when it's attacking uh, the B cell? Oh, thank you. That's an excellent question, Patty. Um, Dr. Sen, which Yes. So, you know, a transformed follicular lymphoma is a very different situation. So when that occurs, um, what we're really dealing with is a subpopulation or, or now a, an emerging aggressive B-cell lymphoma on top of the background of an indolent or, or slow-growing lymphoma such as follicular lymphoma. And in that scenario, obviously, all of our attention needs to be focused on the transformed lymphoma because that becomes the bigger you know, threat in that it's a faster-moving lymphoma that really needs immediate attention. Um, transformed lymphoma can definitely be cured in many patients with the standard treatments that we use for aggressive B-cell lymphomas. So most of the time, the goal would be to go to one of those treatments if it made sense. Um, there's a lot of uh, clinical trials right now that, you know, are trying to test novel drugs in aggressive B-cell lymphoma, and some of those trials are including patients with transformed lymphoma. We talked about CAR T-cell therapy now uh, being available and on the market for aggressive B-cell lymphomas. Well, CAR T-cell therapy has been tested in patients with transformed lymphoma, and it can be effective therapy for some patients. So um, the answer is this is a type of lymphoma that can be cured with some of the standard treatments that we already have for aggressive B-cell lymphoma, but also there's definitely, you know, progress on the horizon with drugs like CAR T-cell therapy that are also showing real benefit in transformed lymphoma. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. And a question for Dr. Sen from one of our online participants. Is there a treatment protocol for patients on ibrutinib who develop AFib? Yeah, so ibrutinib is a very commonly used drug now for a variety of lymphoid malignancies, including CLL and, and some non-Hodgkin lymphomas. And one of the, you know, rare but uh, definitely recognize side effects of ibrutinib is the development of atrial fibrillation. So um, it probably occurs in a, up to sort of 3, maybe even 5% of people um, receiving ibrutinib, so it's something that we need to recognize as a potential complication. I think that there's no right answer to how to manage the development of atrial fibrillation in patients on ibrutinib, so it needs to be an individualized decision based on that patient's uh, health status. Um, one thing I'd like to mention is that an important emerging field is the field of cardiac oncology. So there are now cardiologists who are specialized in dealing with cardiac complications from oncology drugs such as ibrutinib. And, um, you know, I refer many of my patients when they develop atrial fibrillation in the setting of ibrutinib to a cardiac oncologist, or, or I should say a uh, um, a cardiologist who has specialty in oncology uh, to help manage that situation. Most of the time, patients will stay on ibrutinib uh, because, you know, the ibrutinib is a very effective treatment, and the goal is to manage the atrial fibrillation while allowing the patients to stay on the ibrutinib. So very often, patients will sometimes require additional medications to manage the atrial fibrillation, but it, it is not an immediate reason why people have to stop ibrutinib. In my clinical practice, most of the time I'm trying to manage the atrial fibrillation, often with one of my co-specialists from cardiology, to ensure that that patient can continue to get ibrutinib safely. And Dr. Um, Evans, did you want to add to that as well? No, I agree. It's uh, completely, and it's uh, thankful we have great emerging, burgeoning collaborations with our cardiology colleagues who appreciate some of the unique side effects that happen. And I would also add that part of the reason there's not maybe a quote-unquote protocol is just there's so many different ways it can happen. Uh, how severe is the atrial fibrillation or other cardiac events? How long has a patient been on it? And so really it's it's ultimately the oncologist and patient making that decision, pros and cons. Uh, there are some other medications in the same pathway that may not have as significant of a risk, so sometimes you can change to another medication. But, yeah, I would say very individualized, but we've become, um, I would say also at the same time, thankfully, we understand it much more and we know how to deal with this when it happens. Excellent. And we have one last phone question we're going to just take and then we're going to conclude the call. Um, uh, Crystal? Thank you. Our next question comes from Michael H. Your line is open. Yes, hi. Thank you so much. Um, a, a quick question in the area of T-cell lymphomas, particularly aggressive. Um, there's a fair amount of research, but the CAR T-cell therapies seem to be geared much more towards B-cell lymphomas. So my question is, is there any effort to see how CAR T-cell can work in the T-cell area? And then Sort of side question, because it's been so successful in B-cell, is most of the research gearing towards B-cell and sort of leaving T-cell in the shadows? Thank you, Michael, for that question. And Dr. Evans, do you want to address that question? Yeah, I, I would say it's definitely started 
in B cells, in particular that CD19 antibody has been a target that we know is now FDA approved for two and, and maybe a third will become available later this year. Uh, it, that's really just the start. And, and absolutely, it's being ex extended to T-cells. I had alluded to the target is CD30, which is a little tricky because CD30 are on T-cells themselves. But thankfully, scientists are figuring out ways to navigate that potential barrier. But, but quite frankly, when I say the beginning, it's not just in, in lymphoma. I mean, CAR T-cells are being looked at across in a multiple a multitude of cancer subtypes, solid tumors included, uh, is, is one point. Uh, an additional point is we're also looking at other immune effector cells. For example, natural killer cells are, are something that's very active, and you're, you are absolutely able to construct similar constructs with an antibody on top of that natural killer cell. So we are just literally scratching the surface, and uh, it's a very exciting time in, in lymphoma and cancer in general, and, and definitely need more research to be, able to, to be able to push these discoveries through. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. This has been an amazing, amazing program. And I also want to thank all of our participants who've asked such great questions, both online and on the telephone. Really, um, I, we could actually continue probably into the well afternoon even further all on different time zones. So we could continue another few hours because we do have many more questions. But I did want to say to all of you that thank you. And I do want to, for those of you who haven't had a chance to ask your question or did ask a question but have a follow-up question, so I'd like to give you some resources on how to get your questions answered. And because we've partnered today with the Lymphoma Research Foundation, I think that their helpline is just a wonderful place to go to for information. It's 1-800-500-9976 or their website, www.lymphoma.org. Now, at the end of today's program, you're going to be getting an evaluation form, well, probably in a day, a brief takes a day to send that out to you. And that, that evaluation form will have not just an evaluation of the program for you to fill out, but you also have all the resources we've mentioned on today's program to access and to look at. And so you'll be getting all these resources that I may mention at the end right now, and perhaps some others, too, that we decide to add on. Now, in addition, um, we do sort of recommend that there are, many, there are many organizations out there, so you'll get a listing of many of the different organizations. For those of you who want to pursue financial assistance or copay foundation assistance, both the Lymphoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care offer those programs. Particularly the Lymphoma Research Foundation has significant copay foundation assistance and practical help for you as well, as does Cancer Care. So you have these two um, organizations, and there are many others as well. And of course, for the counseling services, if you wanted to join an online or a telephone support group, or if you wanted to, um, you know, get some supportive counseling services, you certainly can call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. But most importantly, we do not want anyone to leave this program today thinking that you're alone. Because you come from all over the world and from all different parts of the United States and different areas, you may not know anyone else in your community who has your type of lymphoma or has your particular concern 
or your type of cancer, your concerns. And so we want you to now know that there are a lot of people out there and a lot of organizations that can help you. And although I know there are moments when everyone does feel alone in dealing with this, we also want you to know that you are connected now to resources that can help you. So um, please take that away, and you will get those resources in your materials. And we all do care. We care a great deal about each one of you. We want to be sure that you get the help that you need. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. I also just want to mention that Cancer Care has just initiated a meditation app. It's on our website. It allows you, um, it gives you free relaxation techniques and things like that if you think it would be useful to you. Again, thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.